This is Andy Woodall. You're listening to BS Tape Recorder. Also, you're listening to PS Tape Recorder. I was going to say BS is a bad name. Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, Alan Gone Mitra. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, at the time, it was kind of like a growing field of incorporating technology into economic theory, which before that hadn't really been done. They just assumed just kind of these rational agents for other models, and then uh, all these technologists. And I think naturally kind of realized that oh, that's not how humans behave, but trying to model based on more uh, of like a realistic perspective. Kind of strange how this interview got set up. Uh, I set it up through his publicist, and when I called the publicist, he seemed surprised there was an interview, and, and a little annoyed, quite frankly. And then he puts me on the phone with Alan Gon, and uh, but he tells me to keep it to 10 minutes, and I'm like, oh, Alan Gon must be really busy. But he never came back on the line to give me the bum's rush, and Alan Gon didn't seem like he was in a hurry, but we spoke to him for about 15 minutes because I thought, well, maybe he does have stuff to do, and I don't want to keep him. He was very nice to, to talk to us uh, for the show today. We have a dumb bit coming up about the Sinclair broadcasting chain, uh, making all their anchors read that same copy. We got kind of a different angle on that for you, and we have a song of the week coming up from Jewel Vera. I'm going to see if I can get a uh, special guest in here to help me discuss that song of the week. But first now, let's get to that dumb bit. story that's been in the news the past couple of weeks kind of came to a boil this week. It's a story about how Sinclair, who owns a number of TV stations, in fact, I think they own the most TV stations in America, made their local news anchors read this specific piece of copy saying how, you know, what, the, what a great job they do of, uh, you know, covering and reporting the news and that they're not involved in any kind of fake news. And I guess it came to a, uh, a head this week because all of the promos, I think, now have been produced, and so people, Deadspin was one of them, a guy we're going to hear from in a second is another who made a big montage of all these anchors reading the exact same thing. So, so one of these guys, as I was saying, is a guy named Ben Swan. He used to work at the local station here in Cincinnati, not owned by Sinclair. Uh, it's the compete, one of the competing stations. They have a 10 o'clock newscast. It's a Fox affiliate. They are owned by an outfit called Raycom. Now, in his time at Channel 19... Uh, ben decided to do a segment called Reality Check, and it's a, a purportedly, I guess, a fact-checking exercise. And eventually, over the years, as he's taken it uh, out of Cincinnati uh, onto his own website, he left Channel 19 a couple of years ago to start his own website called Truth in Media. And anyway, the, these Reality Check segments have kind of devolved into conspiracy confirmation. Occasionally, he does one that's more fact-checking, and it's fine. But uh, most of the time, it's like, hey, don't dismiss these conspiracy theories. There may be something to them. Now, this isn't really the case here, but uh, he posted this on his Facebook page. He actually works for a local station now in Atlanta, uh, not owned by Sinclair, either owned by another company. But anyway, uh, he still runs his Truth in Media uh, website. He still does his reality check videos and actually got in trouble for one of them in Atlanta. He, uh, Besides the fact that he... Uh, look, you can look these up on YouTube. Besides the fact that he did a Sandy Hook piece kind of saying, hey, you know, there may have been a second shooter. Why don't we look into it? it? And then proceeded to have all this circumstantial jive as to why we should look into that. By the way, looked into. There wasn't one. And then the Pizzagate thing is even more crazy. Watch that one. That one is insane. He's like, you know, this Pizzagate thing wasn't completely out of left field. There was, there, you, you could see why some people bought it. So anyway, he got suspended from the station in Atlanta for that. Anyway, brings us back to the Sinclair story. Uh, here is the beginning of it. The beginning of this is very important, and it becomes very important at the end. Here you go. 
Reality Check with Ben Swan, powered by Dash Digital Cash. Boom, bada boom, bada boom, bada boom. Tune, right? Okay, so uh, first of all, he starts off, like I said, uh, playing a montage of these. I don't know if he assembled this one. I think he did. Uh, Deadspin also has a nice one. You can Google that as well. But it sounds a little something like this. Hi, I'm Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to, to serve, serve our, our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS 4 News produces. But we are concerned about trouble and trying to be responsible one-sided news stories plaguing our country. Plaguing our country. So Ben then points out for clarity that he knows some of these anchors personally. He's worked with some of them in the past, even though I don't think he's ever worked for Sinclair, but he says he knows some. So he has some, an inside scoop on this, and he even spoke to some of the uh, anchors in question, he said, uh, anonymously, because, of course, a lot of them are scared. And that's another thing I need to point out here real quick. Our TV media reporter uh, here in Cincinnati used to work for the local paper, and I worked for the local public TV station. And even this guy is not political at all. He was taken aback, and he said uh, he spoke to some people who said uh, they have been thrown not threatened with being fired, but if they quit, they have non-compete clauses. They can't get jobs in media for like a long time. And I think they actually have to pay Sinclair back some of their pay or something like that. So it's a really strict clause in their contract. These people just can't quit if they disagree with it. But uh, Ben breaks this thing down into three main points. And well, they're kind of odd, but here we go. Well, first of all, it's not news. Clearly, this is a promotional segment, which the stations are recording in order to express why they are unique in the market compared to other stations. It's done every day in local TV. But what's different about this promotional spot than in most is that Sinclair clearly has one promotions director who is sending down the same copy it's not news. Well, thanks for connecting the dots there, Ben. Uh, the one promotion guy setting down the one copy thing is a, a little bit of jive because Sinclair clearly knows what they are doing. They could have sent this down and said, hey, just say something like, you can trust us. Uh, You've been your local news source for years and years. And one of the points, they, a kernel of uh, a truth in this whole thing is that they, they kind of aim it not really at other media, but they mentioned social media, and we know from listening to this show, Facebook, not Factbook, and all those other things, is that people believe memes over actual news. So there's a little kernel of truth to what they're saying is that you should probably trust actual journalists over memes and random internet uh, websites and things like that. But anyway, so that's Ben's first point, and then here is Ben's second point. This video is clearly evidence of the fact that these anchors are simply reading what they're told, no matter what market they're in. And that happens in every TV market in the country every day. It's not unique to Sinclair. Anchors have a job, and that job is to sell the copy. But they're not allowed to change the copy. In fact, a friend of mine who works at one of those Sinclair stations says that station management was required to have the script read word for word, exactly how it was sent to them. They couldn't even substitute the word hi for hello. And again, if, if they did and they, they quit, it would be very difficult for them to get other jobs. So they were kind of, you know, th there's a mild form of coercion going on here. And then he plays uh, this clip, this montage of clips from the clips. Uh, for so, And this goes on for a minute. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 
This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. This is extremely dangerous to our democracy. And then Ben gives us his final point. Point number three, this video highlights the biggest problem with media consolidation. When one company owns so many television stations, they have the ability to push messaging, however they choose, to vast parts of the country. Again, thanks for connecting the dots there, Ben. Uh, again, this has been a controversy for years and years since we've, since we've seen uh, media consolidation and deregulation, by the way, uh, via the FCC, uh, become a thing. So uh, let's uh, hear Ben's, the, the final part of his final point. Now, some people want to jump all over this video just because it's Sinclair, which is seen as friendly to President Trump, and it's the great evil of local television right now. Well, I guess maybe they're seen as the great evil and uh, friendly to President Trump because according to Politico here, here is a story dated December 16th, 2016, Kushner, we struck a deal with Sinclair for straighter coverage. So, hmm, I guess you could see that's what maybe why people think that. But to raise the alarm over just Sinclair, that's disingenuous. Uh, no, it's not, because Sinclair just did this. And it's not like Raycom or these other media companies are running around making their anchors say the same exact thing to audiences with little trigger words like false news and things like that. So yeah, it's absolutely right to criticize Sinclair for this. So anyway, here's where it takes a really weird turn, and not the weird turn into conspiracy bill that you're probably expecting. Next week, we're going to break down how local media consolidation has been happening across America, who controls so many television stations, and why decentralized media, thanks to cryptocurrency like Dash Digital Cash, is the answer. Wait, what? Your, your sponsor has the answer? <laughs> That's it. It's not a conspiracy. His sponsor is part of the answer to this problem. That's not really a problem. Sinclair, you shouldn't be mad at Sinclair. This happens all the time. But actually, it is a problem, and my sponsor has the solution. Uh, ben? Let's give it a reality check. If you consider yourself to be an old soul trapped in a modern world, you can relive days gone by in classic imprints from our vast collection at OldSchoolShirts.com. We have vintage tees from all the great American cities like Atlanta, Baltimore, Brooklyn, Chicago, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, and more. We've got defunct sports teams, old restaurants, old stores you used to shop at when you were a kid. Just go to OldSchoolShirts.com. It is all one word. Pick up yourself a great and stylish-looking vintage T-shirt, and it really helps the show as well. So as soon as you're done listening, head there. Alan Gonmitra is a stand-up comedian originally from Boston, Massachusetts. He used to write for The Daily Show and The Harvard Lampoon, among other things. But he's been concentrating on stand-up now, and here now is our interview with Alan Gonmitra. Super. Okay. Well, uh, I was looking to uh, the last time we spoke was last January, and uh, you had uh, just wrapped up working on the uh, the Daily Show, and we're concentrating on stand up. So, what's been happening since then with you? Yeah, yeah. So the, the focus then was uh, to kind of hone the act as much as possible, and uh, I think it's been making good good ground in New York in terms of um, kind of working more clubs in the city and also just building material that I feel like still uh, matches a little bit more of my voice. So I think 
Cool. And so is, is the goal to kind of like uh, build an hour that you can uh, shoot for a special or what? what's the kind of trajectory right now? Yeah, I think I think right now the folks are trying to build the material to hopefully have something worthy of like uh, something on Netflix, the Comedy Central uh, down the line. And then um, I think, you know, it, it's kind of, a couple of different avenues that are potentially we're uh, trying to lock down a little bit. Um, so me and a couple of friends, we uh, started putting together these shows uh, the, the comics of South Asian descent uh, who are all born in America. We started doing uh, kind of shows um, catered to uh, that kind of audience and uh, those have been going well as well. So maybe something where we uh, go to India together to perform because we've never done that. So uh, okay. I think that's something that would be fun for us Cool. Do you know my friend Rajiv Satyal? Yeah, I know Rajiv. Yeah. Um, I, when he came to New York, uh, I, did, uh, I did his show. So oh, awesome. Yeah, he's from Cincinnati, where I'm calling you from, and uh, I've known him for a while, and uh, he's, he's doing well for himself, too. So, are you, your parents from India, or you, your second generation American, or how? What's the, the the that family structure like? Yeah, exactly. So my my parents are from India. They, um, okay. They, they came to the country, or I would say like thirty five years ago now, maybe more than. Um, but uh, well, I think certainly more than that. But um, yeah, so they came first to Kentucky, and then they moved to Massachusetts, and I was born in Massachusetts. Okay, yeah. So, so were you a funny kid growing up, and or and you know, we did the comedy for attention kind of thing, or were you just a fan of comedy, or how did that interest develop? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I was. I don't think I was necessarily the funny kid, uh, or at least like you know, not like the traditionally funny kid in the class. But I think I was still like. I still had a sense of humor, so like I, I'd make like funny comments, but I wasn't like just a loud, outspoken, funny guy. Um, I still think that probably is reflected in the material, but uh, I always loved watching stand up, and when I was younger, just doing um, either, I mean, even, even if it was like oral book reports and things like that, um, just getting up and talking in front of people. So I was in the bed, that was something that I was very comfortable doing, and kind of enjoyed putting a little bit of. And when you were in college, what what, were you, what was the career trajectory going to be? Um, it wasn't a very clear path in my mind. I considered pursuing law school at a college for a brief time, so that was that was kind of in the offing. But uh, nothing. It wasn't. It wasn't concrete. I studied psychology and economics, and oh, okay. Um, 
very briefly, but then, um, yeah, didn't, didn't have a little bit of Now, those are two pretty interesting disciplines, psychology and economics. Yeah, yeah, especially uh, at the time, it was kind of like a growing field of incorporating psychology into economic theory, which before that hadn't really been done. They just assumed just kind of these rational agents for other models, and then uh, all these psychologists, and I think naturally you kind of realize that oh, that's not how humans say trying to model based on more... So, does the psychology background have any uh, any effect at all on you know kind of your people observing skills, or uh, you know, does it muck them up in any way, or is it just not a consideration? Uh, I don't. I don't think. I don't think it necessarily comes into play in that regard. I think what happened, even even like that discipline that I was talking about, psychology and economics. What, what I think is like economic theory had existed for a long time based on kind of one assumption and then the psychologists point out like the flaw in that assumption and start incorporating their theories into the economic model. I think like broadly that view of looking at something from a different angle and recognizing perhaps like the this thing that is off about it and commenting on it and looking at it critically. I think that is something comedians do. So maybe that, uh, having an eye for that, honing that through taking um, psychology and economics may have played into comedy, but um, I might also just be trying to <laughs> make uh, psychology education useful right now in a way that it may not be. That's funny, and you had a really cool gig. Uh, you were you wrote for the Harvard Lampoon, which I thought was interesting because growing up, I was a huge fan of sister publication, the National Lampoon. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. From back in yeah, the day, it's interesting. Like I, I didn't know growing up. Um, like I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know about the Lampoon at all. Um, my roommate uh, in college, he was a big fan. And he was kind of like a like a comedy nerd. He knew all that stuff. So I, I had no idea about like the the history of Lampoon and um, and the, the people that have gone on to pursue comedy out of it. Um, but because he was such a big fan, kind of like tagged along with him, and and then kind of um, became a part of the organization. Yeah, I, I only found out about it, the National Lampoon because of uh, an older friend of our family. Uh, my brother's five years older than me, and then this guy was ten years older than my brother. But uh, he was a big fan of it, so he he brought it to us, and we're like, "Oh, this is amazing!" And then from there, I, I worked backwards and realized, "Oh, this came out of the Harvard Lampoon," and and there you go. Um, so, did you get that gig after you'd started doing a little bit of stand up, or was that your first kind of comedy writing experience, or was that kind of concurrent? No, no. So uh, that was all in college, and I didn't do any stand up in college. So. Okay. Um, writing like the, the people who write for the, the, the magazine, they're all um, college students. So yeah, um, the way that process is basically like it's pretty rigorous. You kind of have to submit pieces um, to the editors, and uh, they they have office hours, and they can give you feedback. You go to it, and then you 
space with multiple rounds of um, we're gonna make like multiple cuts and so if you're they like your style and you know, uh submit the data and got a quality then then you have brought on staff. So that was that was the process for that. Okay. But uh, I, I didn't do stand up until after I graduated. And did you like did stand up come about because you got kind of a desire to write in a different form, or was just like a natural progression? Because I, I imagine it's it's similar writing. It's set up in punchlines, obviously, when you get down to it. But it's still two different forms of writing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. No. I I uh, stand up was the thing that I liked and honestly wanted to do. Um, even before I got into college. Uh, Writing for the Lampoon was just kind of a, a fun way to still be involved in comedy. Had I known how somebody does stand-up when I was in college, I think I would have pursued that. But it's, it's such like a, I mean, it's like an alien world when you're watching it. Like yeah. You're full on stage telling jokes, like how does one even start that? Like that, that connection wasn't even in my brain um, until like after college when I, when I started kind of researching a little bit more and going, oh, they're open, like, in my city where I can just perform, you know? Once, once that became a little bit more apparent, so I just went to that. But, um, but no, no, the Limpun was more just kind of like, you know, me getting to be involved in comedy. Um, but it didn't follow that I was going to be stand-up because of but that, I'm curious, it helped kind of build confidence knowing that you, you know, were able to write for this really prestigious humor magazine. Uh, that um, certainly had to help give you a boost that, you know, that you had the funny in you. Um, um, I don't, like, I don't, I don't think I viewed it like that. I, because, like, I don't know, I viewed it as, like, a college uh, club. Even though I, I, I know that there's, like, a you know, a lot of a lot of good comedy writers have come out have come out of there. It that's not how I see when I was in it. I viewed it kind of as a college club, and so when you do stand up, that's like real world, and you're dealing with adults. Like that was a very different world. So in my mind, I don't think I was thinking to myself like, "Oh, I've been a part of this funny college magazine, therefore." I'm capable of making real human adults laugh. Like, I think I was thinking, like, I I can write jokes to make my friends laugh, but that's not the same as like what a stand-up does, where it's like you don't know who your audience is going to be. You know? Yeah, that's what they say. It's it's you know different. Uh, you know, making your friends laugh than it is making strangers laugh. I guess is what it boils down to. Yeah, stand-up just felt like much more real and adult to me than um, like. The comedy schedulers, um, piece that you write can be very like, silly and lighthearted and, and, and it feels a little bit more gritty and like re- real to me. So, kind of, it's a different, different impulse. So, what kind of things are you talking about on stage these days? On stage these days, um, I tried to talk a little bit more about, um, like her personal thing and the things that are just like things that I have like feel strongly about so if there's something that's like really annoys me um, then I'm trying to figure out a way to make jokes about it or if there's something that I really 
I don't know. If I, if I really like it, then there's an affection. I got much fun about it. But it seems to like I feel or I'm thinking about a lot. I'm trying to turn those into jokes. So it's coming from hopefully there's a little bit of like a, a true passion behind what I'm talking about. Um, so there's this ad and then a little bit more of like the cultural landscape that I think uh, um, has changed in, in America now in terms of like how race is perceived um, and then how Indian plays into that. I think I'll, I'll try to touch on that as well a little bit more than I think I did before. Um, but yeah, I think I can go to this. I think I've kind of shied away a little bit too from this like politics stuff because things like things of I don't know things that I'm kind of inundated with in terms of politics at this point. So yeah, well, actually kind of I think moved away a little bit from that than what I was doing before. Yeah, when people are kind of looking for a break from that kind of thing, anyway, it seems. Uh, when they when they go to the comedy club, they want to kind of set that stuff aside and you know laugh about something else, like you said, about stuff that annoys you or you didn't know annoyed you until you thought about it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's been difficult to have like a like a like a, like a new take. Like I think the, a lot of times, if you're doing political comedy now, the the lines are pretty clearly drawn. So if you're doing they liberal comedy, you're kind of preaching to the choir, and if you're doing conservative comedy, you're preaching to the choir. Like, it's hard, it's harder to be, like, nuanced because you don't have that in politics right now. So if you're commenting on politics, it's hard to be nuanced about it. Yeah, and I guess the trouble, too, is the, the, the one thing people are making fun of the most. Uh, I don't want to say it writes itself, but it's it's the behavior is so ham-fisted that you know you can go the audience can always can draw their own conclusion. You know they don't they don't need the help of a professional even sometimes to you know to connect the dots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, there's, there's this quote I feel like it's like it's like the refutation of a caricature that that's a caricature of a refutation. Like if, if what you're, if what you're mocking is already like out, like a bit larger than life thing, it's hard to mock if it's already out there as larger than life. You know. So. Yeah. So, what kind of other things are annoying you then? If uh, if if it's not politics, is it, you know, th- th- interacting with people out on the, the street or uh, other arms of the entertainment industry? What what kind of stuff has been bugging you lately? Um, I think it's a, it's a comedy. <laughs> I, don't know, I think I'm like, getting, I like I'm becoming a cranky old man where like I just think people should be more considerate and it feels like people aren't like just being on the train and people playing their own music or people uh. like putting their, uh, their bags on their seats and other people are standing up. So I think that I'm like talking loudly on the phone when you're in a coffee shop. There's things that I feel like basic human behavior would dictate that you don't do. I feel like start doing and I'm just amazed and annoyed by that. Um, so there, there's that. And then uh, there's, I think, a little bit for me of like pushing back on. I feel like 
some people have kind of like piled on uh, becoming a becoming the, the victim in uh, like liberal circles where people just like blame uh, whatever the oppressor is for our condition. And um, I think that gives too much power sometimes to the oppressor and also like it gets, gets a little overblown. So I think uh, I'll, I'll comment on that as well. Interesting, yeah. Well, great, man. I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, yeah, I th- appreciate you taking the time today. I know your uh, publicist said you had some other things to do, so uh, I think I went over time a little bit, so I apologize. But uh, thanks for uh, for uh, all the uh, good insight and stuff like that, and uh, have fun up in Minneapolis. This will be in print and online and city pages the week that you're up there, so you can check that out. And if uh, next time you're in Cincinnati, we can get you some ink here as well. And uh, say hi to my friend Rajiv when you see him next time. Well, if you could send me uh, a link to your podcast, that'd be great. Oh, super. Yeah, I'll send it to, um, to Chris, and then he can forward it on to you. All right, thank you. Great, man. All right, th- uh, thanks. Good talking to you. All right, have a good one. All right, bye-bye. Thanks to Alangon Mitra for being on the show. You can catch Alangon in Minnesota uh, at the Acme Comedy Club there. Uh, Acme Comedy Company, to be more accurate. April 17th through the 21st, it looks like. All right, so that takes us up. Oh, and if you need any other information on Alangon, you can go to alangonmitra.com. Mitra is M-I-T-R-A, and you can see a lot of videos to his stuff, especially his uh, Conan stuff, which is super hilarious, and uh, he's a really funny dude. All right, so we're up to the song of the week, and the song of the week is from a band from Alabama we played at the end of the top uh, six songs of 2017 uh, when Hannah was a guest, and it was uh, Jewel Vera. And, uh, of course, the big Jewel Vera fan, though, in the house is producer Lizzie. And uh, Lizzie got turned me on to Jewel Vera, and uh, we went and saw Jewel Vera in Atlanta. They were the opener of the very first act on a four-band bill of four other bands we had never heard of, and it's not like... I'm dumb and behind the t- but I'd never heard of anything. Who was the headline act? Our last night. And apparently they've been around for ages. Like ten years. People stand. There were people with shirts, and it was yeah. So anyway, uh, somehow Jewel Vera wound up uh, the opener, which was very convenient for us. And uh, Lizzie has become quite the visual artist, and uh, has been recognized by Jewel Vera. Who else's uh, artwork has? Um, Vanessa Morgan from Riverdale commented on uh, Lizzie's drawing of such. And then what was the other one, a gal from Disney? Oh, yeah, Sky Cats from Raven's Home. There you go. And so how can people follow your artwork? It's um, at Nearly Liza on Instagram. I also have a Twitter, same handle. Cool. So just like it sounds, Nearly Liza, Liza's L-I-Z-A, like Liza Minnelli. Okay, cool. So anyway, uh, up to Jewel Vera. Uh, so I like Jewel Vera a lot. I would kind of describe them as... Americana, I mean, if anything else. Rock, what do we, what do we, indie rock. Indie rock, Americana, I would also kind of say, to be more specific. And uh, the track I've chosen for Song of the Week this week is a song called Running. And Lizzie thinks I've chosen it for a specific reason. Because it sounds like lights. Sounds like friend of the show, lights. But it's a really cool tune. Uh, the other track I was debating between, what was the other one? Uh, Bad, Bad Company, Company is a good one. It's a really great album. It's called Waiting on the Sun. And uh, they were super nice. Well, actually, they went to the merch table after their set, but it was just the lead singer, Ainsley, and the poor thing had to run her own merch. But uh, the good news is there were about a dozen, at least a dozen people there 
Uh, and for being the first band, that's pretty good. A dozen people, just to meet her, they were standing in line behind us to buy merch and things like that, and hopefully to meet and get pictures with her. And uh, hopefully the rest of the band showed up later, but we had somewhere else we needed to be yeah, I in saw, Hot Atlanta. I saw people's pictures, and I think the rest of the band came out eventually, awesome. but I think that we should, I think that was good that we just went. Because, like, I mean, meeting her was enough, like, you know. Yeah, so yeah, we, we had a big time, as my grandmother used to say. And uh, that brings us to the song of the week. This is Running from Jewel Vera. It's song of the week on PFT Tape Recorder. So long, and thanks for listening. Thank you.